Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf. Today, it might be more appropriate to call the show New Books in Science Fiction and Mystery because my guest today is Ben H. Winters, author of the award-winning The Last Policeman series, which concluded recently with the publication of its third installment, World of Trouble. The first book in the series, The Last Policeman, was the recipient of the 2012 Edgar Award and was named one of the best books of 2012 by Amazon.com and Slate, while the second book, Countdown City, was an NPR Best Book of 2013 and the winner of the Philip K. Dick Award for Distinguished Science Fiction. And if that isn't impressive enough, Ben wrote five novels before The Last Policeman series and is working on an entirely new book, a crime story with an alternate history twist. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. That was a nice introduction. Oh, well, thank you. I got most of it from your blog. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, that's why it was so that's why it was so good. Yeah, right. I you know, I, I have to say that's an impressive list of honors and awards for the last policeman, and that brings me right away to my first question. Writers have often told me that the hardest thing about having success with a book is the pressure they feel when they write the book that follows. Did you feel that sort of pressure when you received first the Edgar Award and then for the second book, the Philip K. Dick Award? I would think the pressure for the third book would be uh, would have been tremendous. Well, you know, the, the, I think that, honestly, the pressure that you feel has most to do with wanting the story to be really good and wanting the writing to be really good. Like, the, the fact of winning awards, although obviously it's fantastic and, like, really great and it's a real ego boost and obviously it's good for sales and it's good for recognition and all that good career stuff, I, I, I at least didn't find that it added this extra layer of, oh, man, I'm an award-winning author. I better write really well. Because I think if you're doing this or trying to do it for a living, it's like I'm always trying to write really well. You know, it's like I'm always trying to um, to to give it my A game, I guess. And, and so, and also I think in this particular case, um, because it was a series, because I did have a pretty strong idea from the get go where the whole thing was going. And I was developing the style sort of internally as I worked that the fact of the awards didn't end up, I don't think really skewing it one way or the other. It was just sort of like, great. That's awesome. Let's put it on the cover of the book. You know, let's, 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 let's put it on the back so people know when they're, when they're looking at these in the bookstore, but let's just keep, keep writing it as, as good as I can, you know? And did it help or did you already have outlines uh, mapped out from the very beginning? Or are you the kind of person who kind of writes as he goes or writes one book at a time without jumping ahead to the next one? But this thing, I had basically the big idea of all three books. Um, by the time I was about halfway done with the first one, I had a pretty good sense of when uh, each was going to take place time-wise in terms of countdown toward the asteroid impact. Um, and I had a pretty good sense of the, 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 the broad outline of the kind of mystery he was going to be solving in each one. Um, you know, cause that's really how the series works that each book is in the foreground. There's a mystery that detective palace is working on while in the background, we're seeing the continuing falling apart and civilization, you know? So I had a pretty good sense of where each book was going to fall in the timeline and what was going to be going on in foreground and background. But then as you're writing, my experience is I always start with a pretty good outline. And then by the time I'm really deep into the book, that outline is more or less thrown away and replaced by a different one. The outline is constantly evolving as the draft is evolving because you can't let yourself either to me, 
I can't let myself either work without an outline. So it's just I'm just writing and finding out what happens. That's too loose. But if I'm too bound by the outline, um, I get frustrated with that too. I have to allow the outline to be there, but for it always to be provisional, you know, always to be a work in progress. Well, for people who don't know what the story is about, let me let me just say a little bit uh, because I think it's also one of the great things about the series. You know, is that they are, as you say, they're they're mystery stories, but they're wrapped in a completely different kind of story. I don't know if you call it a sort of cosmic horror story, uh, but sure. uh, but you have that's good. I like that. Well, you have you have your detective, you have your hero, uh, Detective Hank Pallas, and he, you know, in the first book, for instance, he's investigating an apparent suicide, which he suspects might actually be a murder. And in the second book, he's doing a missing person investigation. So those are kind of, you know, they're great stories, but they're, there's, a, there's a classic mystery story quality to them. But then hanging over everything is the fact that there's an asteroid that's about to destroy the Earth. Right. Basically, at the, when the first book opens, we're about 10 months out from a massive um, asteroid impacting the Earth of, of the size of the one that, that wiped out the dinosaurs, so, which will mean that uh, you know, most people will die within you know, a few months of an impact of such an object, and, and everybody will die within, more, more or less within a, a short period of time, uh, decades at the longest. So Earth is under this um, cloud, this approaching doom, um, but the sort of idea of the series is that my hero, um, nevertheless, is trying to go about his business and solve crimes and bring justice to the world, um, even as, you know, for understandably, all around him, things are kind of descending into different kinds of chaos and, you know, immorality and, and wildness. Well, and I have to say, there's something really ingenious about the idea of a character like Hank Pallas, who, in any other context, would be quite ordinary and boring, but instead of jazzing him up, you jazzed up the world around him, and it makes him incredibly interesting because his reaction to the end of the world is to just buckle down and do his job as best as he can. And, uh, you know, it makes him a really fascinating guy. It's funny you put it that way. I haven't really thought about it. You know, I do think he's fascinating, but I think you're probably right. In another context, Detective Powell's wouldn't necessarily be the guy that you go, there's my hero, you know, there's my... And it reminds me of Elliot Ness in The Untouchables. You know, he's um, he's really, he's kind of a prick, and he's kind of, a, you know, this upright moral guy. But the reason he's the hero is because he's choosing, you know, he's making this choice to uphold the law, um, even though it's a law that most people think is a stupid law. You know, a very famous last line of that movie is, is you know, someone goes, hey, you know, I heard a prohibition is going to be overturned. He goes, what are you going to do? And he goes, I get a drink. Yeah, because it's not about, for, for Ness, it's not about the, the morality of the law. It's about the fact of the law. That, you know, he's, he has sworn to uphold the law. So Detective Palace is, is different than Ness in a lot of ways. But one, one similarity there is that he, he has taken an oath. You know, he's always wanted to be a policeman. He's taken an oath to uphold the law and to enforce the law. And to him, you know, an oath is an oath. A promise is a promise. It doesn't matter what the context is. It doesn't matter that an asteroid's going to hit the Earth. It doesn't matter that the police department is more or less dissolved, you know, and chaos is, is, is coming down all around him. That, that's beside the point. What matters is he said he was going to do something, so he's going to do it, you know? Um, and I think that is what you're, what you're saying sort of makes him fascinating. That's not necessarily an extraordinary quality um, in, a, in a human or, in a, you know, particularly in a civil servant, police officer, but it, it becomes extraordinary when it is tested to the degree that I think I'm testing it in a book like this or in books like these. It's kind of ironic because, you know, the way you tell the story, he becomes a detective 
basically because of the asteroid. It speeds up his promotion because a lot of people quit the force and they go bucket list, which is a great term. It's a term that comes up a lot in the in all three books. Yeah. People are, are doing their bucket list. Yeah. So so it sort of gives him this thing, but at the same time, it kind of strips away the perceived legitimacy of law and order. I mean, a lot of people are going asking him again and again, why are you doing this? You know, the world is going to end in six months. Who cares? You know, why do you care? Why do you care? Yeah, to him, you know, even when he's offered the promotion, he goes, I can't remember what exactly he said in the first book, but he's sort of like, I'm, I'm not ready. I, you know, I, I'm not ready and I haven't earned it yet. I'm supposed, you're supposed to be on the force for however many years. You're supposed to have done, have done you know, this various kinds of training. You know, and the sergeant, you remember, was like, look, you know, you want it or not, because the desk is open. <laughs> you know, so he, it's, it's his lifelong dream. You know, the, the fact of the world's impending doom gives him his lifelong dream. But as you say, it, it somewhat strips the, the legitimacy and also the, the value that it would have. But he still, he does it to the hilt. You know, this is his job and he's going to do it. He's going to do it right. Um, so to that, and I think in a way, the whole, the whole trilogy becomes an examination of that exact question. Why are you doing this thing that you're doing? Why do any of us by extension do the things that we do? Why do we care about the things that we care about? Why do we order our lives in the way that we order our lives, given the inevitability of the end, you know, um, you know, spoiler alert, we're, we're all going to die. You know, it's just in the book, it, the, I, I, may, I, get, I make it specific, you know, I give it a certain date. But um, we all, in some way, have to face this problem at some point. What choices am I making? You know, what am I doing for a living? Who am I spending my time with, given that the end is coming? I think you've created an, uh, a great platform for exploring all kinds of fascinating moral issues. And, and that's certainly one of them. I mean, why does everyone go off their rocker? Not that everyone does, but you certainly portray a whole range of reactions to the end of the world. And a lot of people are kind of doing that you know, going off and being hedonists in New Orleans. That seems to be it seems to be the place people go to be hedonists. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I sort of had fun with, just sort of alluding to, you know, various points. I just go, you know, uh, you know, she's going down there to New Orleans to do, you know, whatever. And I don't quite spell it out, but I try to get the reader's sense, <laughs> you know, a suspicion of what might be happening there. You know, that is really, you know, I get into the talking about the, the philosophical stuff. I, I would hasten to add that hopefully the, the books are also just really fun. You know, there's a fun, they're fun mystery stories. There's a lot of, of sort of kind of dry or dark humor in it. And I do, I think I, I, I try to have a, to have a good time kind of investigating or, you know, wondering about all the different ways that all different kinds of people and institutions would react to this particular pressure. You know, certain people would go fill out their, you know, try to do their bucket lists. Some people would leave their spouses. Some people would, would, you know, hew closer to the, to the people they love. Um, and, and I try to show all of that, you know, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of love, there's a lot of, um, friendship, uh, and there's a lot of sort of new kinds of communities that form. So it was for me a law, but besides being just a narrative challenge of how can I tell these stories, there was also just this sort of thought experiment of what happens to the world, what happens to all the different kinds of worlds that we live in. So it was, it was really fun. Really, I mean, hard in a lot of ways to write, like all good books, I think, are challenging. They each present their own challenges, but also just really fun. Well, I, you know, I want to ask you about the challenges, but I also want to ask you, this is the tough part of interviewing. It's like, okay, I have two questions I want to ask. You know, they both seem like natural follow-ups. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with the first one that occurred to me, which was even though you present 
a whole range of possible ways of reacting to the end of the world. My sense was that you are basically an optimist when it comes to the way people are because or you're drawn to the to the to the um I don't know the the better parts in people's character because you know even though a lot of people go bucket list and hedonistic and they abandon their ordinary lives you you draw a lot of poignant portraits of people who carry on and they embrace civilization to the end you know there's there's characters like the waitress uh ruth ann who yeah dutifully yeah. is serving hank and his friends at the diner you know she's serving them breakfast even when there really isn't food left for breakfast and uh and there's detective <laughs> yeah. culverson yeah she's great she's great there's all these characters like that well it's like this i, th- I think probably rob like it's gonna break down a lot of people are gonna be the other way you know in a situation like this a lot of people are just gonna be total jerks and a lot of people are just going to abandon their responsibilities no doubt about it and those people are definitely in the books but i think you're right i think that my my particular love or i'm on the side of the people are just like you know what if we all just keep doing what we're supposed to be doing things will be a lot better they're not going to be good but they'll be a lot better for a lot longer you know and i think those characters are more fun um, to be around uh, and i also think they drive the story more so even characters like in the second book i introduced cortez the thief like he's a scumbag but he's a joyful scumbag, and he basically, what he does when he realizes the end is coming, he just doubles down on his activities. He looks for the opportunities that have been created by this event and totally just delightfully leaps into them, you know? And I love that. I don't love what he does for a living, but I love that when the end is near, he doesn't go, ah, you know, screw it, I'm going to go sit on the beach. He goes, how can I best optimize these opportunities for myself? as a thief, you know, as a, as a, as a housebreaker and, and, and dealer of stolen goods. So that's just, it, it's kind of delightful to write those kinds of characters who are just like, yeah, this is happening, but I'm going to, I'm going to revel in it. I'm going to do my best. Well, you know, it seems as you say that you're, you're making me think that, you know, what you've seen and, and, and one reaction people have is that they, that, you know, given this sort of looming disaster, some people, instead of abandoning what they value, it's just sort of amplified for them. So, you know, Detective Palace wants to solve as many crimes as he can. And, I mean, the remarkable thing about him, even as the countdown is, is literally hours away, he is still going over his notes and pursuing yeah. on bicycle information to, you know, solve the the last part of um, his last case. And I guess you're saying the same thing about Cortez, even though he's kind of on the other side of the law and order spectrum, you know, a thief, he doubles down on his, on his, on his thieving. Well, like in some way it's philosophical and in some way I think it's psychological. Like we all do things to keep busy, you know, and, and sometimes those are, we're lucky enough that those things give us pleasure and sometimes they're just sort of like compulsions. And I think that psychologists might tell you that a lot of times what we're doing is just blocking out the fact that there is ultimately sort of an emptiness. There's a purposeless in life. You know, if you, if you look at sort of evolutionarily what we are, um, you know, we're just, we're born, we scurry around for a handful of years and then we're gone. Um, and we construct these elaborate senses of ourselves and these elaborate communities in part as a way of just pretending that's not so, you know? So I think as I get toward the end of the series, there becomes with palace, I don't know, the nobility, I think, gets shadowed a little bit by a sense of just, like, he has to do this or he's going to go crazy. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's like he's got to just keep working and working and working to a point where it, it's a question, I think, of whether this is truly just noble and he's trying to get justice or whether he's just, like, he can't stop. 
little bit, you know. Mm. Actually, I even used that quote from the Bob Dylan song at the beginning of the third book, um, which is, I, I, I can't let, I won't let go and I can't let go. I won't let go and I can't let go. And, and Dylan in that song is talking about Jesus. It was written during his, his brief but fascinating, um, you know, evangelical Christian faith. But it's really, it's about just like, I, I, I have to do this. And it's not just that I want to, but I can't stop, you know, I can't. Right. So that, that quality is very, very much present in my hero by the end of the book. But, you know, he also has a, a, I mean, the last book is focused on his sister, and you get this feeling, I mean, he's very persistent, too, that he is fulfilling a a commitment to her, a promise made when they both became orphans at a young age, you know, that she, he was going to look out for her. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's very, it's very human. It's not just, he's not compulsively behaving. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that, I think his relationship with, with Nico, probably the less we, we talk about it, the better, but like, I think that it, it reflects, to me, I, I'm, I'm, as an author, I'm quite proud of that, of both of those characters, of him, of him and the palace and his sister, and also just the way that their relationship evolves and how it's revealed to the reader over the course of the three books. And that's one of those things when I was talking before about like outlining, you know, versus just writing that I think you have to, like I had a vague idea of what the two characters were and what they were to each other. And when I originally created the character of his sister, it was very much as like a sort of humorous foil for his uprightness, you know, and his serious mindedness that she was this kind of flaky conspiracy minded person. But then it, it became clearer and clearer to me that there was more there, you know, that this, this love between them and this bond they have and this need for each other um, to protect each other is very real, you know, and like that, I think that's the sort of thing that you discover as you write, that you don't necessarily know is there in your outline and that you find it in the outline, you know, you find it as you go, oh my God, this is, this is what I meant when I came up with this idea. This is what was there all along. Um, and I, and I, and I, I think with this series, the same is true of the whole idea that, you know, I wish I could go back and say that, oh, yeah, I had this really deep, serious idea for a philosophical examination of humankind. But no, I mean, the idea was just, this would be a really cool detective story. If I said it against the backdrop of the end of the world, oh, that's really awesome. No one's, no one's ever seen a story like that before, you know? But then as I wrote, I realized what I had given myself was this canvas on which to, 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 to construct this, you know, was a backdrop on which I could think about these bigger ideas, you know? You give yourself these gifts, kind of, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I want to go back to the other question that had come to mind. I mean, you referenced there were challenges that you confronted in, in constructing the book. And I wonder, you know, what, what were the biggest challenges that you wrestled with? Well, it was always for me, there was always the, the issue of making sure that the science was as uh, correct as I could get it, you know. And for that, I, I, I referred to a lot of, I talked to a lot of experts, um, one in particular, but a lot of different people about the way that asteroids work because um, I wanted it to be as realistic as I could possibly make it. You know, and I, I you know, you call these, it, it's complicated science. I am not by any means a science guy. So that was really, that was challenging and I hope I did, did right by it. Um, and then there's other stuff but there's, you know, with, when any kind of um, mystery story that has murder in it, you know, you want to get the details right of the forensic science of the, um, the anatomy, you know, the drugs, the, the medical stuff. Um, it's very important. I try as hard as I can to talk to experts and get details right and make sure that they're woven through in a realistic way. Um, and that, that's the sort of stuff that takes me forever when I'm writing. And I'm always like so nervous that people will call me on it. And then nobody ever does. I mean, very rarely. But some of the asteroid stuff, people, you know, were like, oh, you know, I'm not sure that's exactly right. But there's this one thing in the third book about the details of the of the, the murder victim uh, that I just 
sweated on for so many days and days and weeks. And then, it's, you know, I just put it in there and it's just like, no one has called me, you know, and been like, hey, I'm not sure about that. So hopefully I got it all right. So, so those kinds of challenges. And then, I mean, also just, I think, um, with the trilogy in particular, you know, once those first books are published, you can't go back and change them, you know. They're out there. They're published. People have read them. So there's always stuff. I'm like, oh, I wish I had had him say this instead. Or I wish I could have her, you know, um, do that instead. But that's already done. So that, that's always a little bit of a challenge. And when you write a trilogy like that where you haven't, say, written them all in advance before the first one's published, are you consciously planting any seeds that you want to develop later? Like you think, well, I'll mention this character in the first book, although I'm not sure what role they might play in the second. It might be good to have them there because I can turn to them. Yeah, I think not so much with characters, but as with sort of plot ideas. I remember there are things that I brought up in Captain City, um, particularly in terms of Nico's, um, the, the sister's thread, that I remember being like, I'll figure out exact. I'm, I'm like, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what's going on here, but I won't quite know until I wrote the third book. And then I was fortunate enough that when I wrote the third book, I figured it out, you know? And then certain characters present themselves, like Cortez, who I was talking about before. He, I, I came up with him in Canton City, and he was very much supposed to be a minor character. And I liked him so much, I, I, I figured out a way for him to be involved in the third book too. I really, really liked him. <laughs> so I was like, I love, I'm, I'm going to bring this guy along in the third book. And if I could write a spinoff novel, I would for him, you know, <laughs> but I, I won't. But so stuff like that happened. Interesting. Yeah. No, he was a surprise when he came back, which is great. That's just the kind of thing you want in a book when you, when a, when a character returns. I wanted to see, I wanted to see Ruth yeah. Ann at the end too, but I guess, yeah. Oh, yeah. Aww. I hope she's okay. Um, right. Yeah, I guess so. I guess she was confronting the end either way. That's right. You're interested, I gather, in mixing classic genres. I mean, here you have science fiction and mystery. And what I gathered about your the next book you're working on, and I, I caught a glimpse of it on your blog, you're dealing with uh, there's a crime story of some sort, but it's also it's set in an alternate history kind of setting. So that's right. Yeah, it's a counterfactual, basically. Yeah, I mean, I am interested. I, so funny. Well, for one thing, with the last policeman books, certainly with the first one, I never thought of it as science fiction because I was writing. To me, it was always a detective story with a kind of tweaked, you know, a high concept backdrop. But then I guess if you're a reader and the book has a giant asteroid in it, that's a science fiction book, you know. So we got, and I'm happy, I'm very happy to be in both categories. You know, I think it got pegged as a sci-fi mystery, you know, mashup. I think in part because I've had written those, you know, mashup novels in the past. So, which is fine. I'm, that's great. I don't really care. Um, I heard this guy, a country, kind of alt-country musician who was like, I don't like the, the labels. They're like toe tags. You know, I like that. It's like, once you, once you stick me in a category, it's like, you know, I'm dead. You just bury me in there. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to be a mystery writer and a sci-fi writer. The new book is very much a kind of speculative fiction, alternate history, whatever you want to call it, mystery novel. And I think consciously on my part, I'm building on what I've figured out how to do with the last policeman books, but it's also super different. And I think it would be very hard for us to call it sci-fi. It's much more about American history. Um, but who knows? You know, who knows what, what they, how things get labeled and also how they get marketed. And um, I just want to make it as good as I can. And do you want to say any any more about it, or do you want to keep it uh, under wraps? And I should probably keep it under wraps more or less. It's about it's about uh, race. Um, 
and, and racism. Uh, and, you know, in large part, that's the sort of the big theme or one of the big themes. So it's been, it's actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge to write. It's emotionally difficult. It's intellectually difficult. Um, and then as always, there's also just the logistics of a good story. So all those things I'm very, very much engaged with now. So uh, hope, uh, hopefully it will be done uh, this year and will come out in 2016. Knock on wood, that's certainly the plan. And do you, are you able to spend your day writing? Like what's your, what's your writing regimen like? Yeah, my uh, basically I write. Yeah, I mean at this point I'm writing and parenting, so I usually write um, till either three o'clock or uh, five o'clock, depending on what my uh, what my kids' afternoon schedules are. So that's but uh, yeah, that's basically it. I mean I always have I always end up having other things to do of various kinds, but at this juncture that's that's pretty much it. And it's a weird now. I, I now is the hard strange time. Um, I hesitate to say hard because so many jobs are so much harder in so many ways, but. The strange time in the writing life is like now I basically have this deadline. I'm supposed to turn in the book mid June, you know, and other than that, it's up to me, you know, in terms of when the deadline's on, how much I have to work on any given day and what parts to work on. So it's all this stuff. Uh, and this is what I'm always saying to writers who are like, how do you, I guess to students or whatever, the writing is as much a matter of project management as it is of sort of create creativity. You know, it's all well and good to have good ideas and be a good prose stylist, but if you can't figure out, how to structure those ideas and also just how to structure your day, you know, then, then it's, it's all a waste. You got to figure out how to build. So right now I'm in a building stage. And, and how do you know when you write a mystery that you've, that you've walked that fine line between creating a mystery that isn't self-evident, people can't figure it out at the beginning, but also, you know, is plausible and people when they're done can see, oh yeah, the clues were there, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's the million-dollar question, and I think if I had an easy answer to that, I, I could bottle it and sell it, you know, on eBay for, for, for a lot of money. I think that you just know, and it's, it's just with practice, and it's also just reading a lot. I mean, I can't stress that enough. You just learn by reading, and you can read those great Agatha Christie novels and, and see exactly what she's doing, and you can feel when some of them are, are cheating, you know, or feel cheap, and, um, and then, you know, I read a lot of mystery fiction, and I'm both because I love it, but also because I'm always learning, you know. You're, you're, and, and that's one of the things you start to see is, is kind of how people do just that, how they, how they plant clues and how they divert our attention um, in ways that, that feel fair. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. Uh, but it's also, that's just fun. You know, that's one of the joys of the job is trying to figure that out over and over again. Do you test it out on readers? I guess you have, like, beta readers that you, you see what they think? They kind of. I, it has been my experience. I, I don't have a, a bunch of beta readers. Like my, I, I have a few people who, who I, who read things early on in the process. When I've written the first few chapters or maybe the first, you know, third of the book or something. But once then, I, I don't give myself enough time. That's the problem. Like deadline wise, um, I've been lucky enough that these books were written. Um, they were sold already. So I didn't, I didn't really have time to, to write them give them to readers, give those readers time to read it and give it back to me with notes. It was much more like I just wrote it <laughs> and sent it to my editor. My editor would have notes. Um, but even, you know, I just, um, I would probably do well to figure out a better schedule, but that's just how it's been for me so far. So I'm not going to what it's working. Yeah, it's definitely working. So you don't need to change anything. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. We'll see you on the next one. Um, so, well, thank you so much. Um, let me, uh, let's see, where can folks find you on the web? 
Oh uh, yeah, I have. I've been a terrible blogger lately. I've realized that I any writing I do outside of my work in progress, I always feel frustrated that I'm wasting time. But I try to blog every once in a while. It's nhwinters.com is my website, which has my blog on it and the you know, information about my books. And um, you know, I'm on Twitter at nhwinters and, and face, there's a Facebook. You know, you can find it, all this stuff. Um, yeah, and uh, you can buy the books at your local bookstore if you got one, or at um, uh, you know. You know, go to your local bookstore. Excellent. A plug for, for your local bookstore. I've been talking to Ben H. Winters about his award-winning Last Policeman series published by Quirk Books, which concludes with the publication of World of Trouble. You can listen to more podcasts at our website, newbooksinsciencefiction.com, or on iTunes and other podcasting apps. Feel free to leave a review if you've been enjoying the conversations. You can also find New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy on Facebook and on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf. Follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau. Theme music by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. Next up on the podcast will be Rod Duncan, author of The Bullet Catcher's Daughter. So get ready, and thank you so much for listening.